Hello, welcome to another episode of the Rippling Pages podcast. Great writers making waves with the word, all in conversation with me, Liam Bishop. Today I'm joined by Joe Scott Cohen. Just before we go into the introduction of the episode, I'd just like to let you know that there are issues discussed of a sensitive nature in today's episode. Thank you. Today I'm joined by Joe Scott Cohen, a writer from California. After penning Teacher at Point Blank, published by Aunt Luke's Books, a book described as mediation on subtle and overt forms of violence in secondary public education from up close and a pink collar point of view. Joe turned her attention to Charles Whitman, a man known as the Texas Tower Sniper. This is the subject of Mass, a Sniper, a Father and a Priest, published by Pelicanesis Press. Scott Coe uncovers some of the more untold aspects of the man who killed his wife and mother and the 15 other people on the University of Texas campus in 1966. Joe's nonfiction has appeared widely across the web and in print. She is also an associate professor of English at Riverside Community College in Southern California. She joins me today. So on the night of August the 1st in 1966, Charles Whitman killed his wife and mother. In the morning, he made his way to the University of Texas and opened fire, killing 15 people, the final victim dying in 2001 from their injuries. Can we just talk, Joe, about why you returned to this event that happened originally in 1966 and what significance you think it holds in the history of violent acts in America and inspired you to write this book? You know, it's, it's interesting because when I started working on Mass in uh, 2012 or so, I didn't think that I was going to be writing an entire book about uh, this story at all. I thought it was going to be the first uh, of many chapters in a linked collection of essays that was going to kind of meditate on uh, angles that had not been explored in stories of public violence. So it seemed in the US, it seemed like, well, this isn't the first massacre, certainly, <laughs> um, but it is the first televised campus shooting. You know, there was real time footage, uh, you know, coverage on the radio, coverage on television. And so uh, it seemed to, to capture that sense of, of spectacle. For that reason, uh, it was going to be the first, the first chapter. And then what happened, of course, is that the more I studied and the more questions that I asked in looking at this question of religion and, and um, uh, ritual to some degree, you know, mass media is a, is a ritualized kind of a, kind of a medium and, and thinking about uh, the way that the telling of the, the UT Austin story had been kind of locked down. It had been told in a certain way of the heroes, you have the villain, you have the obvious evildoer. Um, the innocent victims in public and, and so forth. And, and so I, it just seemed to me that it, in, in the US, we just had our 300th mass shooting event um, in June of 2021. So that's you know less than halfway through the year and we were at 300. So that idea of the ritual and the replication, um, the, the almost lo <laughs> certainly logarithmic um, rep replication of these events. It just seemed to be kind of almost um, a flashpoint moment. It was it was saying more than maybe we thought it was saying. And so that's that's why I wanted to delve in more to it. 
Um, and, you know, it was certainly before people expected, if they heard a bang in public, that it meant that we were having a, a you know, a mass shooting event. Where did you, um, where did you first come across it then? I think, you know, it's interesting. It's one of those iconographic uh, shootings that you see pictures of the tower with the plume of gun smoke, you know, the, those, those things are circulated you know, every year. Uh, again, in, in mass media. Um, I had had heard about it. I had read a little bit about it because I was interested in school shooting. So it was kind of just a little, you know, like a, a little uh, topic headline, right? And it was something that I wanted to just understand more about. And so it wasn't that it was a, at a particular moment. I'd been writing about school shootings and school violence for some time, um, you know, for, for almost, almost 15 years at the point I started this book. And so, yeah, it was kind of more like, I need to know more about this. That led me to looking at the secondary accounts of the shooting and the secondary synthesis that existed at the time that I was writing. And then it also took me back to the archives, of course, because I wanted to look at the primary materials. For me, it was a new, you know, it was, it was new for me. It was a discovery of, of Charles Whitman and what happened. Uh, I wonder if there was any kind of different kind of responses to that. I, well, I, I don't know. And I'm, I'm actually very interested in, in, a, in a British perspective on this book. Um, and f frankly, a perspective on this book from, from any country other than the United States, in part because we have this, we have this discrepant reality of, the, of gun violence, right? So there's the gun violence part, and then there's the mass violence part, which is another layer. Um, but the one thing that we kind of share in common is a, is a type of, um, uh, you know, hegemonic or, or dominant masculinity, which always pulls for the gun or the knife or the fist, um, you know, in order to dominate, in order to prove a certain kind of Western manhood. And so, um, you know, what's fascinating is, is that much of the research that I have discovered over, over all of my work um, related to this question about gender, this question about performance, uh, performances or shows of force um, comes out of, away from the United States. There's good, there's, don't get me wrong, there's, there's amazing gender scholarship inside the US, but really looking at and interrogating this question of how bad is bad enough before we get there, before we go to the public square, before we get this semi-automatic and the automatic weapons and take them into, you know, a public space. For this book, you do a lot of reporting, uh, but you also build a narrative and you use some different narrative techniques as well as just obviously right. quite in-depth investigation. And there's a whole host, there's about 60, you know, 60, 70 pages, isn't there, of notes and support. Yes. Materials. yes. And it's such a, um, you know, it's, it's a read. It's kind of also reads like these, well, it is a true crime story to an extent, but it reads like quite a, a sort of a thrilling uh, true crime story, which isn't to take away from the seriousness uh, of the event. I just wondered, setting out to write it like that, one of the terms that get, recurs a lot and is, is sort of, they're given the term senseless. Yeah. Yeah. And this is terminology that you, you do explicitly grapple with at one point, but it also seems to be a, something that you're trying to work out throughout the book. What's at stake when we call Charles Whitman's act or any other acts of masculine senseless. This is something that is that really haunts me. 
Um, it, it, it haunts the book. I, and it, you know, I just wait for it every time we have a new report, you know, it's live coverage and, you know, wait for the senseless. You can almost set your watch to it, you know, within, within 30 seconds. And, um, you know, as a, as a language person, um, as a writer, that idea of, of senselessness implies that if only it were the sensible kind, um, if, if only it were, you know, if you think, for example, in the case of Whitman, if Whitman had just been pointing his gun um, at someone in Vietnam on the right side of the demilitarized zone, you know, if, if, only, if only we had sent him and he'd been killing it the way we told him to do it, or if only he had killed someone and we didn't have to hear about it, you know, if, if he had stopped, for example, with the murder of his wife and his mother, if he'd quote unquote only killed them, we could make up a story about how, well, there was probably a reason and he had his reasons and so forth. So, so it, 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 it's very interesting that we have this idea, I talk about this in the book also, of, of the good kill you know, which is actually inside the Judeo-Christian tradition is it, violence is sacralized, it's made sacred, it's a gateway. I, I think the book is in some way asking us to consider why the violence is an affront to our humanity, but why it also makes sense inside that milieu, inside that, inside that world. Um, and uh, and it also explains why we fixate on certain kinds of violence. They're very, it's you know, it doesn't really require a great deal of moral sophistication to say that someone going to the top of a tower in a public place and shooting at strangers, the first of whom is a pregnant, heavily pregnant woman, um, that that is an atrocity. It really doesn't require a whole lot of of nuance and understanding to to be outraged about that we throw down the senseless gauntlet and we, we avoid that examination of conscience that's necessary to understand, well, this was the end of that story that day, <laughs> you know, and, and it, it, there was something else was in motion before and what was it and who were the actors and who were the people and, you know, as opposed to seeing it as this isolated uh, strange thing. I think that we need to maybe look at violence as something that we can um, examine and and understand, and not not by distancing ourselves from it, but by recognize in some ways our subtle and, and sometimes not so subtle complicities with with it. The last person to to die from their injuries was in you know two thousand and one. So. Right. Right. Uh, they've, you know, they've lived with the physical ramifications and also the kind of psychological ramifications. And you do an interesting thing with the book because you you do sort of isolate the the event. You take this event and you focus on the main actors, as you call it, who are Whitman and the priests. But this, there's, it, because what it sort of seems to do is is that it heightens all these ideals that are around at the time at the same time you have these very um i mean imagine charles whitman you know he was in the marines wasn't he so i imagine he was a very kind of patriotic man and priest leduc obviously a you know was catholic so it takes these very sort of strict ideals and it puts them at odds with the violent act the the, the killing and the murder this idea then of a good kill can you just talk a bit more about how that then relates to is it a christian idea is it is it a, is it a sort of american idea is it is it are we talking about sort of sacrifice 
you know, one of the one of the moments that I describe towards the end of that middle section is um, the one of the last visits uh, at the time I had made to Houston, Texas, for for a, a site visit for a place where the the priest and and Charles Whitman had had hung out, and I had met with a friend of of Whitman and and. Um, in any case, as I was leaving, it was Martin Luther King Jr. holiday weekend, which is a you know three-day weekend in January. And at the time, um, this film, which I don't know if is made across the Atlantic, I'm sure that it has, um, the, the Sniper um, had just broken all these bo box office records, and it, you know, and I don't have to go down that rabbit hole, but it's just about this idealized killer, you know, the killer that we send overseas to make these good kills, right? And he keeps just the it. Um, Bradley Cooper film, yeah. the I think American American Sniper or just the Sniper? In, I in, think in, it's in, American in, Sniper, isn't it? Which I yeah, think is probably I, quite important exactly. for you. And there we are. And I mean, wait, is this a story about Charles Whitman? No, 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 no. This is the good one, right? So, so, you, so for me, it was just this hideous mashup. Never mind. On the weekend when a civil rights leader, you know, was assassinated, coming out of his uh, hotel room. That, and then they're also, you know, thinking about inside the the religious ritual in the in the Catholic ritual. It's a very precise thing that's happening on the altar, you know, there is this idea that the priest is reenacting the sacrifice of Christ on the cross in a non-bloody way, the caveat, right? Um, and, and that everyone is participating in the redemptive power of this ritual when they partake of the Eucharist and so forth. So, so, so there's this idea of we're going to repeat the the sacrifice of christ so the crucifixion a lot of the the, the images are fascinating from this period um that you know would have been in the catechism and even catechism comics of the time that whitman would have seen um you know images that 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 show christ literally bleeding into the chalice you know as as the, the priest is offering it of course the altar boy there with him and so this idea about well that's a, that's a good kind of violence you know that that that's a good kind of violence it was commanded by god it's transformative it saves us all from our sins and so forth so just these these recurring motifs you've touched on bits about how you wrote the book and some of the investigations you did and it centered around obviously houston in texas a lot of the work in the book like the actual investigation um, seemed to be this uncovering of the priest Leduc. And it seemed like it did require a lot of work to uncover. I imagine what were the challenges, I guess, to um, get yeah. I guess the whole book's about the challenge, but I mean, in terms of, yeah, I guess Whitman's story was a lot more easily accessible. I mean, there are a lot of ways to to look at this. I would say at first, so I'll go back to the beginning. At first, I thought, remember, I was going to write a chapter that was going to look at Charles Whitman as a Catholic, as a as a Catholic in the South. Huh? Interesting. Okay. And so and so, I was already thinking about that idea of ritual. And then when I found this statement by a priest, I'm like, oh, you know, is he alive? Is he dead? I thought, okay, I'll check these boxes. You know, a priest is is in Catholic tradition uh, someone that any person can lay claim to, right? He, he is my father by by uh, religious tradition. So you know, he's kind of a public figure. Um, this really shouldn't be that mysterious. I was I thought maybe other people had written about him. They had not. And so, so what what happened as this unfolded? 
every time I turned around, there was a new question and there was a new um, unsavory discovery or, or concerning discovery. So, so the things that made Leduc's you know, story complicated to excavate were the degrees of geographical movement in his story. You know, he was born in Waterbury, Connecticut, which is in the Northeast of yes. the United States, and then, uh, you know, went to college in Massachusetts, and then went, or excuse me, to, to high school in Massachusetts at a boarding school, and then went to college in Ottawa before, he, and then went to seminary, and then went to another seminary. And meanwhile, uh, he, he meets Charles Whitman at about, uh, when Charles Whitman is about the age of nine in Florida. Now, there, there are reasons, there's just, I excavate the story, his parents moved and so forth, but a lot of moving before he becomes a priest and then a lot of movement after he becomes a priest. Name change that appears in the official record that does not bode well, has 13 different parish assignments um, after he's ordained in 1955, between 1955 and 1972, including out-of-state assignments. These are all things that then, of course, I had to understand. I had to go look at all of the research on problem priests or predator priests, you know, because there was no complaint against this person who was dead. Um, so well, how do we read this record if, they, if, if, we, if it's not transparent, if it's not shown, if you can't do a Freedom of Information Act request, which is a journalist tool in the U.S., if you can't do a FOIA request for a Catholic diocese, if you can't um, say, I need to see XYZ, then your, your options are very limited. Um, but so you do other things, you're like, well, okay, I have to go to the seminary. So there was a great degree of travel. I had to interview people. I had to circle out and try to find folks that would talk to me before I went into this, into the hierarchy. You know, I, I interviewed uh, former Archbishop Joseph Fiorenza of, of uh, Galveston, Houston. And that was a very strange thing. It took like six weeks and it took me a long time to even understand what the heck happened there. I thought I would be told, no, go away. But it was weirder than that. And so... Yeah, I don't know if you just talk a bit more about that encounter because it was a... You do write about it, don't you? And it was a very odd exchange that you had with, with him. I had to I had to structure... This was the other weird thing. You know, when you're trying to find someone that you get the idea people don't want you to find or understand about, you have to strategize before you activate everyone talking. So I had to start kind of with people who were outside of that structure and move inward. Um, and so, so when I finally um, reached out to the Archdiocese of Galveston, Houston, this is by the way, I have to say, after I just did a formal request for, can you tell me what this priest parish assignments were? I, I did get those things from the you know archivist. That's a very standard type of request. But this was now more like, well, tell me about that time. Tell me about what you remember about this person, what happened to him and so forth. Um, and I requested through the media office this interview and they said, well, we need to know the name of the priest. And I thought, oh, man, I know it's your job to to run me around. I know it's your job to give me the things I already have. So I said, well, I'd rather send you a picture. And I wanted to send a picture that showed that I had been on the site because it was not a picture that was Googleable. It was not a picture that existed anywhere except on a wall at the seminary. And so I sent that photograph and and no name and and said, you know, I, I figured they would say, well, bye bye, never mind. And they kind of left me on pause. And it was this, you know, push me, pull you drawn out thing. 
Um, and then eventually the, when I said, is it more accurate for me to report that I have, you know, that the archbishop has declined my request for interview or that he's unavailable, tell me which one. And, you know, and she said, well, I don't think he's available. And then she said, you know what, send them by email, which is, of course, its own nightmare, but it's part of <laughs> part of the story. <laughs> and so I, you know, spent a day crafting those questions. And uh, and then I got a very surreal like, again, it was it was very strange where the, the, the bishop probably working with his secretary had um, crafted these responses. And the most interesting one was his response to Leduc, which was almost depositional language. And that for me was also like, wow, you know, um, he also he also used his familiar name, which which most people did not do, which was the tell for me, like, okay, you did know this person. It was, I think it was a very disturbing encounter because it was so drawn out. It wasn't just no, it wasn't uh, yes, it was, I think I write this in the book, that it seemed designed in a way to make me feel bad for even asking about it. And that's the way that, that's the way that inquiry into these matters tends to, tends to work. And it works against journalists, certainly, or writers, but it works against anyone who has a serious complaint. They're always leveraging a kind of, oh, gee, I'm so disappointed mm. that you, <laughs> that you would... Two weeks after the shooting, following leads from Texas law enforcement, an FBI agent interviewed the priest in Alaska. By that date, his friend's picture had already appeared on the cover of Time, looking pudgy in a white cardigan with a fluffy toy dog at his elbow and a newspaper spread across his lap. Life magazine printed the photo of bride and groom kissing each other at the wedding while the priest's small face smiled in the background. In his white surplus and with his small stature, he could have passed for an altar boy. The priest's name did not yet appear in any articles. The Life magazine cover was filled with a close-up of a window shattered by two of his friend's bullets, with the tower casting its own dark reflection across the cracks. The glassy edge of each round hole gleamed in the late-day sunlight. The empty center was rimmed by a lacy starburst where a hand could almost press a host to fit inside. These were not victims the priest had prepared for and they would be difficult for him to understand. No one had taught him about senseless crimes that were not holy mysteries that could not be consecrated on an altar with traditional words of blessing. Perhaps someone had tried, but he had missed the lesson. News showed footage of a woman collapsed for protection behind a searing hot flagpole and men with rifles crouched on the street behind parked cars and students with cameras and binoculars gathered around a fountain. There was a young man who had returned from Vietnam who said he cleared two bodies from the line of fire. There were images of a white ambulance with its back door hanging open and someone's bloody leg. There were images of the clock tower on high like a tabernacle atop an altar. I wondered if how much then the kind of the events that uh, surrounded the Catholic Church, I wonder how much they fed into um, the book you were writing. And you referenced, for instance, um, Spotlight about oh, the yeah. investigation of uh, the abuse in the Catholic Church um, the Boston Globe undertook. I wondered how much that surrounded your, um, your work as well. 
Well, I mean, Spotlight had not come out um, when I was working on the book. It came out um, just after the book was kind of in, in uh, process to be published, kind of almost sim simultaneous. However, I knew and I also had to understand, you know, when you, you're kind of stepping into something, right? You're looking for a priest who's dead that there aren't a lot of open records available about, who's connected to a mass shooting, and people are a little strange when you talk to them about him and evasive and they tell you stuff and t it's not great and you find strange records like, oh, he had this cabin and took out a big loan against it and so forth. You have to kind of know the, the again, the milieu, the world that you're stepping into. And I was not looking for this priest in 1956 when people, you know, thought Catholics were cool and it was, you know, before Kennedy, but Catholics were in the American mainstream. They were not kind of a minoritized religion and they, they were, you know, entering into, um, into their place in the mid 20th century. Uh, and everyone had a fantasy that Bing Crosby, you know, was, was the, you know, parish priest. Um, that's a fantasy, of course, and it's a media fantasy, but I knew that even asking about well, where is this priest after he's dead, after 2002, which is kind of the bombshell that, that now we know as the spotlight bombshell, but at the time it was unfolding in, in the US um, and disillusioning Catholics and, and freaking people out and kind of like, wait, if, this is, if it's this bad in Boston, what about elsewhere? And of course, then it activates people's willingness to talk about these things, but it also activates a defensiveness. It, it activates a protectionism, right? And so I, I just knew that it, I was going to kind of have to be in this weird middle place where was I gonna have to say, look, I, I'm not working for a lawyer. Look, I, I'm not, I don't have a complaint against this person. However, if there is one, I wanna know about it. I mean, it's a very weird, it's a very weird thing um, <laughs> to be in, in 2012 asking about someone who died, who was a priest, who died in 1981. And people, I just knew people were going to be, well, why are you asking? And, and that's an interesting, different kind of dilemma. <laughs> yeah, I mean, did you just, did you just go out to set and write this book? You know, what kind of, did you have any kind of funding to do it? Or was it just kind of a bit of a personal, you know, kind of um, just your desire to write this book? No, I think, um, I mean, I knew that my second book was going to be related to uh, kind of transition from school violence specifically to, to public violence, to looking at that more broadly in the U.S. And I didn't know, as I said at the beginning, that um, it was going to be entirely dedicated to this. And I think, um, you know, I, I didn't have support. I mean, I, there, there, there have been, um, you know, articles that I've written that I've been paid for. But um, but I didn't have any, you know, I, I didn't have institutional support for this for this book. Um, and I didn't have a grant or something like that. So it really was very much a matter of, um, I guess you could call it compulsion. You know, the fact that you had to undertake this journey uh, and the difficulties. And I just wondered if uh, you think this says anything about how stories like Whitman's are reported. Uh, in the kind of journey that you want to talk? Yes, I think that um, generally we um, oversimplify. Um, and I realize that some of that is a function of 
uh, media forms, right? So if you have two minutes to tell a story that's a commemoration of the 1966 shooting, you have your bullet points that you hit, no, no pun intended. Um, and, uh, and so there's that, but there also are very powerful narrative structures. Um, again, going back to part of the reason I structured this book is I wanted to do it in a way that would disarm that, you know, you, you're not opening the book with the shooting, even though you maybe know that there's a shooting coming, you're starting with the priest and the mass ritual, right? What is that? Um, so I kept trying to, to, to defamiliarize. I think we think we already know it. You know, there is that sense of a kind of almost cavalier. Uh, I mean, I've had people say to me, oh yeah, that's the one where he, he had a tumor and that was it. It's like, well, how much, how much, what? Referring to um, Charles's, the, the, the autopsy found that he had a, that might be responsible for his uh, violent impulses. We have to be very careful here because the the uh, the autopsy that was done on Whitman showed there appeared to be a tumor, um, but then they lost his brain, <laughs> and there is some disagreement about the whether there was a tumor, um, whether uh, that particular tumor in his case would have had anything to do with these things. That is very different from the study of particular brain impairments in particular cases and patterns in, in those type of things, like looking at the amygdala. There are people who study that. So if we say, for example, that maybe there was no tumor here or uh, that this tumor didn't affect and create this. In fact, you know, again, the work that I'm doing right now suggests that this was this was a long time coming that that uh, that idea of trying to isolate a solitary cause and then that's the story of the thing and I'm done now is is truly you know it's a disturbing way to tell a story and it, it's also it's also pressing aside um any any sense of uh of the particulars of this story right and that, and that does tie into though doesn't it how stories like Whitman's are reported and it seems what the, one of the achievements of the book is there could be a lot of reasons for Charles Whitman's crime and, you know, Leduc's involvement with that as well. Um, and you've spoken, you know, you've referenced a lot of the different environmental factors that could have contributed to Whitman's crime. You've, you've spoken about some of the biological ones as well. Um, and you speak about these in the book, but you never seem to ascribe a particular cause. I wonder, did you find it difficult writing something like this? to avoid, you know, avoid going down a particular route or a particular path to? No. Um, I think that, that the, again, the, the idea of trying to um, understand how in some ways this, this violence is very ordinary. You know, in, in, the, in the Catholic calendar, the, the shooting, this extraordinary shooting, um, happened on August 1st, 1966, which is an ordinary, ordinary time is what it's called. So it's kind of this um, place in the calendar, um, where, you know, it's not Advent, it's not Lent, it's not, you know, around a feast, uh, it's not Easter. And so for me, the, the idea of all of these things contributing 
um, that that in, in in an individual life, you know, we it's very weird. We do the you know, is it nature or is it nurture or is it was it a tumor or was it a, or was it his father or was it the fact that he he bonded with someone who now, since my book has come out, has been listed as a uh, uh, credibly accused molester of children. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, uh, gee, it kind of looks like it might rain here. You know, <laughs> it's like something bad is probably going to happen here. So, so I guess, I guess the the thing is, is when it's it's more like, you know, you could take you could take one of these things away, and you have twelve other things. You know, and so, so I think for for me, it it was um, more about how to how to wrestle those things into a kind of structure that someone could follow. And that that would that would um, help them to to unravel a little bit that comfortability with oh it was this or that um, so so I, I found that actually part of the excitement is maybe not the right word but part of the um, part of the the puzzle of of the book for me was figuring out um, how to talk about these layers as overlapping and these pieces as connected as opposed to well because we have you know, I mean, I'm not saying he was Catholic, therefore, or the priest was an alcoholic, therefore, that that's not it. I mean, it's not really it in any story. It's 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 trying to look at these things as interlocking pieces. And then in an individual life where the person is or isn't coming to terms with things, where they do or don't have good mentors, whether they're surrounded by enablers who are always making excuses for them, you know. Uh, yeah, it's just. It, it, it's amazing to me how on the one hand people want to say, you know, there was a tumor or it was because he was trained in the military or whatever. Uh, or they or on the other hand, it's amazing denialism, which is, well, he just had a bad day. I don't even know what that was. That's not the man I knew. It's like, well, you didn't know him very well. <laughs> it's, it's, it's quite strange because it, Whitman comes across as quite this, um, quite a kind of hollow character. and. You, there could be a chance of kind of pitying, you know, Whitman and his childhood, um, which I don't think would be the right response for it. ultimately what, you know, what the book is about and what he ultimately did. And it's a fine line. You you know, you, you're skirting a, a lot of fine lines and a lot of ways to sort of not blame, but articulate the, the, the issue um, and, the, and the environment that, in which he's in. I, I think what I would say is that, um, you know the the idea of any type of catharsis when we talk about it in drama of course this is still western but is that you have that sense of pity and fear um at the same moment and so he is a pathetic figure he is i i i would argue that there is something that is uh so broken and you can see it in this priest story you can see it in, in whitman's story um, and you can see it in my story of trying to put these broken pieces together and to make some kind of sense of it. But I, I, I would argue that you can feel a sense of um, pity may not be the, be, be the perfect word for it, but a sense of, oh, you know, it's just a kind of overwhelm, almost beyond language, a sense of, um, of some sympathy and accountability at the same moment. And a sense of fear, uh, in in it, a sense of repulsion that, okay, so are my, could this happen to me? Could I do this? Am I contributing to this? Am I helping prevent this? What's my role in this? That sense of self-implication, 
um, is is also is also something that I was trying to wrestle with. And that was kind of me in the middle with my muddy hands in that middle section, you know. Well, I'm not saying this, but can you please tell me that he was amazing and really a wonderful person talking about the priest, right? And and, and he was not. But you look at his childhood and it's uh, it looks very lonely and looks very isolated. And he was in a church that, you know, fears women and um, permits all kinds of things. If it's, you know, if you have the right advisor, the right mentor, it just replicates over and over. Yeah, and imagine, and like you said, you know, imagine that was difficult, and especially finding out later. As I, as I understand it, after you published this book, we 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 did find out more about Priest Leduc, and as you said, he was um, what's the terminology? Credibly accused of. <laughs> Right, he was he was identified. The diocese, many dioceses across the U.S. in 2018 were experiencing a lot of pressure, and Galveston, Houston, which was um, which was Leduc's diocese for about 15 or so years, um, was under pressure to list its. It had, it had held back for a diocese of its size. It had held back its names. It had only those who had gone into litigation were listed. And so, in January 2019, uh, the Chancery Office and the Archbishop listed its credibly accused priests, and Leduc's name was there. And I have to tell you, I mean, it was eight months after Mass came out. I was shocked. I thought that if his name deserved to be there, they would not give it up. So it was interesting to me that it was listed. It was also supremely unsatisfying. On the one hand, vindicating, like, okay, I was looking somewhere, it felt like trouble, there was trouble. Okay, but we don't know the number of accusations. We don't know the locations of, of victims because of the slipperiness of his, his name. Um, you know, the outreach to find anyone who might be old enough to, you know, still be surviving any abuse. Um, maybe they didn't know him as Leduc. They knew him as Gil, Father Gil. So they may not even recognize his name. Yeah, if yeah. Not. It was something to see that. I will, I will not lie. I almost, I, I almost fell on the floor. Um, I had a friend who was in Houston at the time, another researcher who saw the list as soon as it was revealed to media. And uh, she called me immediately. And um, I, I will never forget that moment. I just thought, okay, but now what? I don't know if this is just endemic of this character, Leduc. You know, he's such a such an ephemeral kind of figure and such, a, such an influential figure on, on Whitman. I want to, I do want to speak about this because I know it's something that's that's very um, well. You've written about it before, and um, I know it's very important to you. And it, it is the act of how Whitman's act started when uh, by killing his wife uh, and his mother. Um, right. And there are many, many victims in acts like this. Um, and there are many narratives which you know we don't hear about. We don't hear about all the victims' narratives. And if we could just talk a bit more about what happened here. Um, and how it related to uh, how events unfolded. Yes, I mean, I, I think in, in this in this case, and I think that in a lot of cases, um, you know, recent reports of a database in the U.S. Um, called it's called Americans for Gun Safety. It's it's basically a database of of mass shooting events and and, and specifically looking at guns. More than half of those events um, are preceded by some account of abuse or murder in the household. 
um, or of an intimate partner. So that gets, you know, it may not be the spouse, right? But it may be the girlfriend or, or maybe the, the intimate partner, most, mostly heterosexual, um, and most of the perpetrators are male. Um, and it, it, it seems to me, and I've written about this in different places, but it seems to me that the, the violence against these intimate others um, who are often construed as feminine, right? The, the guardians and the, um, uh, in some ways, the, the, discarded, the discarded feminine influences in the, in the killer's life, um, that intimate violence is a kind of gateway to the, to the public performance. And, and, in, and in Whitman's case, it's, it's a very reverse Garden of Gethsemane thing that happens. Um, I don't know if you know that story in the in the New Testament where Christ goes into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray with his apostles at night and you know let this cup pass and and uh, and then he gets betrayed in the garden and then the next day you know he's he's a you know he's arrested and then he's eventually crucified right um, and and in in Whitman's story we we know at least according to what he writes that he'd been thinking about murdering his wife for two days. Um, then he murders her, murders his mother. He's like, then I, I'm going to murder my mother too. You know, he adds that in. He murders his mother and his wife the night before the mass shooting on the tower. And he's, you know, he writes letters and, and makes notes and packs his trunk and everything. And, you know, under the cover of night when his wife's body is in the, in the bedroom. Um, one of the things that people don't often know and this is the reason why I think it's important to talk about gun violence and, you know, gender-based violence or violence against partners that does not involve a gun because he stabbed his mother and his wife. Um, and, uh, and there is a, almost a sense of a very twisted honor type of a killing. Uh, he bought a specific knife, bought a brand new knife, and he kills his, his mother and his wife. And I think that the idea of uncovering the narrative, it, it's really important to think about, well, what was he like to live with? Who was sharing a bed with this person? Who was cooking for this person? Who was ironing this person's shirts, you know? And and this this idea, we have this very re repetitive story. We go, well, that was just backstory. You know, that was, and it's like, no, that's actually the first thing. That's the very first thing. Um, that happens. And so we, we have a kind of lack of curiosity about that, that in a weird way protects a certain kind of mythology about the home. You know, the home, the home is the yeah, man's yeah. castle and so forth. So um, I, I think that, I think that it's important to see those, those, um, any victim in the home, whether it's fatal violence or not, has expertise that we do not turn to. And I think it's important for us to to wonder and be curious and to learn from what they might have to, to teach us. Is this an uncovered aspect? I mean, the, the data right now show that it's more than 50% of the time um, that, the, that a, someone who commits a mass shooting in public has already murdered people at home. Right, more right. than half of the time. So, so you know, that's, that's uh, that's a pattern. That's not a one-off. That's not 2%, you know? So, and the other thing that's important for us to recognize is that many times we don't have a mass shooting event in public. It stops at the home and maybe it doesn't qualify as what quote unquote counts as a mass shooting because it's just a killing of the family and that that's three people. 
right? And so there are all these different ways to, to look at the data and we have to kind of keep circling back to what was happening in the home. Um, there's a hierarchy of, of victimology and different theorists write about this, about who, who is the perfect victim to deserve our sympathy, right? And that's very racialized, it's often gendered, it's often based on a kind of distance. The person didn't know you and they shot you, well, you're obviously an innocent victim. You, you know, you had nothing to do with them. But if you lived in the house with them, well, maybe, you know, he had a reason. Like there is a, there is a very, a very interesting turn that we make um, that basically, again, shuts off that spigot of, of an inquiry and curiosity and a willingness to learn from the people who really are the first responders before we hear that crack in the sky. Yeah. And, um, I wonder if this is where your uh, work's going to take you next. Um, is the more to sort of tell of this story, do you think? Yes. Uh, right now, I am um, working on a book for the University of Texas Press, um, and it is a book that is fleshing out the narrative, uh, the life story of Charles Whitman's wife, Kathy Leisner Whitman. Um, and it is based on a, an archive of private correspondence um, between Kathy and her husband. Uh, they were separated due to military circumstances on and off for, for more than half of their marriage, actually. Um, and, uh, but also her to her mother and then also from him to her. And inside this archive, we can really see what it's like to live with a coercive and controlling partner when you really are trying to to reason with and, and make it better and move forward in your own life and realizing uh, that you may need to leave. And as we know, uh, when a woman um, is even considering leaving, if her partner knows about that, she is most vulnerable um, to being discarded or being being attacked or being killed. Um, so, so, so in any case, that's, that's what I'm working on now is really trying to understand Kathy's life in her language at the time without theory, um, as she was living it and trying to make sense of it. And there's a lot to learn and, and to understand there. I mean, is there, is there any repair, you know, possible, is there any repair possible with events like this or is this it, you know, is this act of writing this book that repair? Right. I mean, you know, you were talking about the the uh, wounded victim who perished from his injury in 2001. And um, I, I read somewhere that the um, that this individual just decided to stop undergoing dialysis. Um, and so, you know, they just couldn't do that anymore. Um, you think about um, all of the people who were who were killed. Um, you know, Charles Whitman is dead. Uh, the priest is dead. Um, Charles Whitman's family members, his, his brothers are dead. His father and mother are dead. Obviously killed his mother. Um, so the idea of repair, I think, on the one hand, I do believe there is something about repair in memory and a narrative repair, which is trying to make things available to, to consider and to, to, um, to see you know, things that have been hidden, things that have been secret, things that have been um, mystified that, that maybe are not, and that, that we can have more clarity about that, that that has a healing property, but it doesn't bring anyone back from the dead. Joe, 
Scott Coe, uh, Mass, a sniper, a father, and a priest, is out now. It's published by Pelican Music, and uh, it's 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 been you know it's a heavy topic and it's you know tough talking about it. it's tough reading about it. Uh, so Joe, thank you very much for joining me all the way in California. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Liam. My thanks to Joe for joining me today on the Rippling Pages podcast, and of course, my thanks to you again for listening. Now, if you'd like to get in touch with the Rippling Pages podcast, you can do so via Twitter or Instagram, and that's at Rippling underscore pages. That's at Rippling underscore page, and that's for both Twitter and Instagram. You can drop us a message if you like at RipplingPagesPod at gmail.com. Otherwise, it's until next time, where I'm going to be joined by Charlie Bayliss, and he's here to talk to me about his poetry collection, Santa Lucia.